He came to restore all of the promised blessings that are intended for a perfected humanity. Or to put it another way, biblical hope. The Christian hope is not to throw this body aside. The Christian hope is to take up a new body, a resurrected body. That's the Christian hope. The Christian hope is not that the good part of us gets freed from the bad part and we can just be free of this old body forever. The Christian hope is that there's another one prepared for us. This is why the Christian tradition is to bury and not cremate. Because that body in the ground represents for us our hope. Our hope is not that the body, we're done with it, no more, just burn that old thing up, never use that again. No, the Christian hope is that that body will be raised and we won't, as Paul says, be naked for eternity. We will be clothed with an eternal, further clothed, he says. Remember, he's talking talking here about himself. He's talking about God's chosen people yearning that there would be this further clothing, this new body, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by, by, not by death, but what's mortal may be swallowed up by life. The hope is not that our body's dead and gone. The hope is our body will be swallowed up by new life at the resurrection. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. So notice what he says here. He says, we we are God's people. He's given us the Spirit as the guarantee. And yet, having this Spirit as a guarantee, He does what? Groans, yearns, longs for the physical blessing, for the bodily blessing that he has confident expectation will come to him. This is biblical hope. Biblical hope that the promised physical blessing, the promised bodily blessing is ours, so much so that even though the Spirit is in him, even though God lives in him, he nonetheless still has this yearning and this longing that is so profound that he says he groans. He groans to put off the tent and put on the building. Look with me at Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing. So here Paul expands the lens to all of creation. All of creation is said to long eagerly for the completed salvation. For the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, 
the redemption of our bodies. Paul says, the God of the universe lives in me as the first fruits of the eternal spirit, yet we still groan inwardly. We still have this fervent longing for the completed salvation that Paul supernaturally has this confident expectation will come to be. Okay, So we are to have this confident expectation that on the one hand is fed by this deep, active, emotional, if you want to use that word, just a deep inner longing for those blessings, both blessings that await our bodies and blessings that await our spirits. We are to long for that and groan for that. But then that's balanced on the other side by a patient waiting. We also are supernaturally endowed with this patient waiting. Look at Romans 8 again. Now hope that is not seen, or hope that is seen, is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? There's much we could talk about there, but we'll keep going. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait for it with patience. So this fervent longing, this this groaning for the blessings that are to come doesn't dominate our expectation in such a way that our expectation of the blessings to come turns into impatience. You see how if it were only buttressed by fervent yearning, it would then turn into impatience. Well, when's God going to take me? I have known lots of folks, particularly elderly folks, that there comes a season in life sometimes where you can just start to get impatient with God. Have you known people that they, it's their time, they feel like that their time here is up, why is God still leaving me here? And there begins to be this sort of impatience. That's not true biblical hope. True biblical hope is balanced on the one hand by that deep yearning, but on the other hand by this patient waiting for it to come in God's perfect timing. The confident expectation includes the patience that God brings it about in His perfect timing. Look at what James has to say in James 5. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So James is not telling them just to be patient people. He's not saying be patient with each other, although they should and we should. He's saying be patient in the context of waiting for the Lord. He says don't get impatient waiting for the Lord. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer, look how he's going to illustrate this. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. There's this good fruit that's coming from the earth, but right now it's just a little shoot about this big, and it's going to take several more months before that comes to harvest. And the farmer doesn't go out there and dig up the little shoots. He doesn't go and eat the leaves. He waits patiently for the harvest to come. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth? Be patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also, in the same way, like the farmer, you also be patient Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, what does it mean the coming of the Lord is at hand? I mean, he wrote this 2,000 years ago. How long of a hand is he at? You know, is it a 2,000 year long hand? Don't we often hear, you know, okay, the, the Lord's coming, and it could come in any minute, and 2,000 years ago they said, it could come in any minute. Now, 2,000 years later. Well, uh, the reason for that is one day to the Lord is 1,000 years and 1,000 years is one day. And so to, to the Lord, it may be 2,000 years since He left the earth to, to us, but to Him, He's been gone two days, right? Don't you often hear that? And that's true. 
However, I don't think that's what James really has in mind. I don't think James has in mind, you know, God's outside of time and it's really only been a couple of days and so he's really at hand. What he has in mind is not the Lord being at hand chronologically. What he has in mind is the Lord being at hand sequentially. Everything's done. Everything's in place. It's all accomplished. Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished. There's nothing that has to be done. His coming is right at hand. Nothing has to be arranged. His coming is right there. And so he's not talking about time-wise. He's talking about sequentially-wise. It's right there. And, And it's like our hand is right here and God is just about to put the coming of the Lord into our hand. And he's not going to snatch it out. You know that game that we sometimes play? I've always disliked that little game that you sometimes play, you know, give something and snatch it back or hold out your hand. Somebody's going to give you a high five and, ah, and then you laugh at them. Maybe I'm looking into it too deeply, but maybe it's just teaching that you've got to be aware that when somebody's about to give you something, they might not. And our Lord is not that way. He's not right at hand, just about to put it in our hand to say, ah, how about another 5,000 years? It's right there. It's right there. We'll see Him soon. Everyone in this room will see Him soon. It's right there. And He's not going to jerk back His hand, right, as you slam your hand down and look like a fool. It's right there. And James says, be patient. It's right there. You'll see Him soon. So there's this patient waiting that's balanced by this eager, fervent yearning. And it all culminates in this confident, again, supernatural expectation that these promised blessings will be ours. That is the one aspect of biblical hope. The other aspect is the blessings themselves. Now, what we want to do in the remainder of our time is I want to make a solid and firm connection between hope and calling. Because remember, this is how we started. We started talking about hope by saying we've got to to have this firm foundation in our minds of calling. Because calling, our calling is the source of our hope. Well, let's make sure of that. Let's see what that actually means. Let's look into the Scriptures and see why is our calling the source of our hope? Why are they so intrinsically connected together? We know they are because Paul tells us they are. Later on in the same book of Ephesians, Paul says in chapter 4 and verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. That's pretty specific. He's saying the call owns the hope. The call possesses the hope. The hope comes from the call. He's pretty clear there, but he doesn't tell us what that means or why. So let's delve into this just a little bit because I think it is helpful for us to see the connection between calling and hope. Why is the calling the foundation for the hope? I think there's two reasons that the Scriptures point us to. And the first reason is this, that both our hope and our calling come to us through the same gospel. The same gospel is the means by which our calling comes to us as well as our hope comes to us. So let's think 
think this through just a little bit. So our calling, we said when we talked about our calling, that there is this generic invitation that all would believe and repent and you'll be saved. And within that larger calling, there is this powerful, supernatural, effective calling that comes to Jesus' sheep. And that quickens our hearts and we believe. And we said that that comes to us by way of the gospel, that we don't receive a summons from God, a calling from God outside of the gospel. It comes to us by means of the gospel. But that same gospel is also the one that tells us about our hope. Because that gospel tells us that Jesus is here to save. Jesus came to save from our sins. So what does it mean to save us from our sins? When the Bible tells us that Jesus came to save us from our sins, it means He came to save us from sin and all of of its effects. All of its effects on our bodies, on our minds, on our hearts, on our souls, on our communities, on our culture, on all of it. He came to save us from all of that. He came to save us from the lack of concentration that we now suffer because of the fall or the sicknesses that we now have because of the fall or the fact that we have trouble understanding spiritual truths because of the fall or our attitude problems or our interpersonal problems. He came to save us from all of this. And He came to restore to us all of the promised blessings that are intended for a perfected humanity. Or to put it another way, biblical hope. Completed salvation. The blessings of a completed salvation. The blessings of our glorious inheritance in the saints. Look with me to Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. We talked about that before. The hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So the gospel came to the Colossians and the gospel told the Colossians about the hope that was laid up for them. And the hope that's laid up for them is the fulfillment and the enjoyment of all the promised blessings of a completed salvation. And that came to them through the same gospel that the calling came to them through. Or look a little bit later in verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds... He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless before and above reproach before Him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So there's this intrinsic connection and the gospel is the connection. The gospel is the, the news that Christ has become our sin so that Through faith in Him, we become His righteousness so that these promised blessings are ours. This hope that's laid up is now ours. And that same gospel brings to us this powerful, effective summons that then causes us to choose Him and to believe. Or Romans 8 and verse 24, For in this hope we were saved. In this hope we were saved. So, hope 
here is kind of like the final goal of salvation. And calling, as we said earlier, last time we said calling is kind of is synonymous with salvation. Those who are called are those who are the redeemed children of God. So there's this close connection here. But then there's another connection that I feel like is even closer and even more important. And that's number two here. The calling produces the indwelling of the Spirit who himself produces our hope. The calling, the summons, the powerful, effective calling of God is the means by which the Spirit comes and dwells in us. And the Spirit is the one who then produces within us the biblical hope we've been talking about. So back to chapter uh, 1, verse 13. For in this, when you heard the gospel of truth, the word of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until you acquire possession of it. Okay, so belief, the calling comes, and with the calling comes the Spirit, and with the Spirit comes this confident expectation, this fervent yearning, this patient waiting. All of that comes by way of the Spirit to us. Imagine, if you will, a starving man. You may have heard of starvation and you may have heard of how people who are dying from starvation, you reach this point at which you no longer sense hunger. You're still wasting away. You're weak and you're dying, but you lose the sensation of hunger. Your body has just stopped generating that sensation of hunger. Now imagine a starving man that you then come to and you give that starving man one forkful of hot, juicy steak right off the grill. And he takes that into his mouth and he just gobbles it like a starving man would. What then happens to the man? You have awakened in him a ravenous hunger. You're not going to give him that piece of steak and this man dying of starvation is then going to say, I still just don't feel hungry. You will awaken within him a hunger that will then be more powerful than it was before. That's the giving of the Holy Spirit to us. The Holy Spirit is given to us. And when He's given to us, He awakes within us a hunger for Him that we didn't even know we had. We were dying and we didn't even know we were starving. But then the Spirit comes to us and then we're made aware of just how hungry we are. And so then we're not satisfied. We're then hungry for more. Albert Martin put it this way. He said, The man who's content with his present measure of grace has no grace. The man who is content with the present measure of the Spirit has no spirit. Because the Spirit automatically brings with him that yearning, that groaning, that hunger, that desire, that expectation, that waiting, all of that the Spirit brings with Him. 
and awakens within that lost sinner what they didn't even know they were dying from. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. So clearly he's talking here about hope. There's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. That's a promised blessing that awaits Paul. That's what the Bible calls the blessed hope. There's laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to also to all who have loved His appearing. So, make the connection from the end of the sentence to the beginning. There's this crown of righteousness laid up for me. And can you tell Paul's thinking about it? He can't get it off his mind. There's a crown of righteousness laid up for me. But it's laid up not just for me, but for all who have loved His appearing. Now, who loved His appearing? Who could possibly love Jesus' appearing? Only His own. Only those who know Him. Only those who belong to Him. Only those who can love Him because they have first been loved by Him, as John says to us in 1 John 4. And so can you see how the coming of the Spirit then created in Paul a love for His appearing that also was accompanied with this expectation, this fervent yearning for the crown of righteousness that's laid up for him. Paul is the starving, hungry man who has had his hunger awakened. And now he desires more of what awakened it. Or look at First Peter chapter 1. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, let's work backwards through that. Peter ends by saying, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You are obtaining the outcome of your faith. Obtaining there, that's a a participial phrase. So you're in the process. He says you're in the process of obtaining this completed salvation, the outcome of your faith, the blessings that are awaiting you. And while you're doing that, uh, Peter says that you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with with glory. That's one of the fruits that we talked about earlier, one of the fruits of biblical hope. But then before that, he says, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice. How can you love someone you've never seen? While you're asking yourself that, put aside the Hollywood notion of love at first sight and the romantic, all that. Put that aside and ask yourself, how can you biblically love someone you've never seen? That's a supernatural thing. So Peter's saying, you have this supernatural love that has come to you because he first loved you. And He has now indwelt you. And His indwelling of you is now filling you with this biblical hope as you are obtaining the fulfillment, your final salvation, this eternal promise that's laid up for you. As you are fulfilling that, you have this yearning, this this expectation, this patient waiting while you are rejoicing in your sufferings because the Spirit has come to you and He has created and awakened within you a deep, deep Hunger, or, or if you want, change the metaphor to thirst. Imagine someone thirsting to death. And you come and you give them about that much ice cold water. And they say, oh, what that did to me. 
was just make me that much thirstier. That's the Holy Spirit's work. That's why the calling and the hope are, are inseparable. That's why the calling produces the hope. That's why the calling is the foundation of the hope because the calling brings the Spirit to us and the Spirit is what brings to us that expectation, that promise that is to come. Let's end with C.S. Lewis's quote. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that, it, that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. God doesn't want us to push down our desires and be content with less. God wants us to taste of that Holy Spirit and say, I want much, much more. I will not be satisfied with less. I will be satisfied only with more of what I've been given. We live in a world that is dying all around us of of extreme hunger. And they don't know it because they haven't had their hunger awakened. The devastating effects of sin, the blinding effects of sin, so blind the lost person that they're not even aware of their own starving hunger. And they think that this hunger that they have in their life is going to be satisfied with this and with this and with this and with that. That that is why we live today in such a culture of absolute confusion. Gender nonsense and all this other. Confusion. Because we live among starving people who are dying of starvation, yet they do not even know they are starving because of the blinding effects of sin has caused them to not even be able to see their own starving hunger. And it's only the Spirit who comes with that morsel of juicy steak that then gives to them and they say, that, that is what my soul needs. And that's what Lewis is getting at. The child of Christ knows that God wants His children not to be satisfied with what's down here on this earth. He wants His children to have this yearning, this patient yearning that is this confident expectation that there is a hope laid up for us that includes all of the blessings, physical and spiritual, that the Scriptures contain, and it is laid up for us, and we have this supernatural, certain, solid expectation that it is ours. 